every Arizona, Arizona homeowner's, homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Living is the life for me. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, the fourth Saturday of the month. So we have Farmer Greg joining us in this, well, not in studio, Zoom studio today. He's, uh, I'm, I'm seeing in the background of the beautiful uh, urban farm in the background full of an abundance of fruits and vegetables. And we're going to be talking about citrus today. And Greg, I love your, your talking points here. We've never really gone back to the history of citrus. They're just, they're mm-hmm. here and we talk about them and you know, you can drive through and you see in Mesa and Arcadia, all the neighborhoods that used to be or, or were built into citrus groves that were still there. But but how did that all come to be? How did how did citrus make its way in the Southwest? I'll start with a little backlog history of citrus. And I love that. Cool. Well, thanks for having me, as always. A little bit of history. So one of the curious things, I went back to school late in life uh, in the late 90s, and I was taking a writing class at Phoenix College. And I had to find some books to read that I would be interested in. And I came up with this book called Citrus by John McPhee. And it's it's uh, about 140 pages uh, that was written in the late 60s on citrus and how it came to be uh, in the world. I haven't read it in a very long time, but there's a couple of really curious things in in here toward the beginning. And one of them is, and I'll just read this, in Europe, one celebrated citrus tree called the Constable, lived for 473 years. And does the book say, was it producing that the whole time? It doesn't say that. But but even if it um, produced for half of it, which probably produced for closer to 80 or 90% of its life. Right, exactly. And I have, so I live on an old irrigated citrus orchard near, near the studio, and I have in my backyard, two citrus trees that were here when I arrived 30 years ago. And as far as I can tell, uh, I talked to one of my neighbors when I moved in 30 years ago. He was 90 and moved, lived in the neighborhood in the 1920s when these trees were being planted. So I have two Arizona sweet oranges on the back part of my property that still heavily produce every year that were planted in the 1920s. So they're approaching 100 years old and still producing. You know, I've said this before, and it's it's how different would Arizona look today if citrus had gotten here just a couple hundred years earlier? Because the Casa Grand Ruins, that got abandoned around 1450 A.D. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if they had gotten citrus on their irrigation ca- canals down from the Salt River to their, their compound, and that had just been lined with citrus, how, how many more years could they have sustained? Yeah, exactly. So... You know, citrus is amazing here. I don't know the history of how it arrived in Arizona, but I could make something up. Weather for citrus, citrus absolutely love, love, love this weather. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Arizona is number four in the United States of how, of growing citrus. So we're, you know, after I'm sure Florida and California are two of, two of the other top ones. So we are a heavy citrus producer here. That's that was my next question. I, I, Florida was an obvious. California was an obvious. Who, 
Who's up above Arizona? We'll have to. I'll, I will check that out. I'm just going to go out on a limb and just say Texas just because of the land size they have. That's what I was thinking. Of. There are parts of Louisiana around Plaquemines Parish. They grow citrus out there too, but nowhere near the capacity of Florida. So we've got citrus all across the, the you know, basically the, what would you call that? The 38th parallel of, the, of America from every state has it from coast to coast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of our five C's of the state. You know what they are? I do. All five of them? Da, oh, yeah. Da, da, okay, so citrus da, da, obviously da, da, is number one. They're all agricultural related. Uh, copper, cattle, cotton, and the last one is huge in agriculture, the climate. Climate, exactly. Awesome. I had to think about that this morning before we came on the air in case I got quizzed. <laughs> The the you know it's, it's obviously changed a lot over the years, but that was the the big industries in Arizona through the the mid century. Oh, big time! I've heard stories that there used to be a uh, a small train line that ran from downtown into North Phoenix for all of the citrus that was uh, picked in the twenties, thirties, and forties, and um, then shipped across the country. I believe it. And that was a time when you, it wasn't just city the whole way. You actually went through these these big orchards. <laughs> well, there you go. I, I arrived here in the 60s and it wasn't city the whole way then. There was a, uh, I, I believe, I recall, there was a space between uh, Phoenix and Scottsdale even. And there's a map. So the our nursery is at an old painting contractor's uh, facility at uh, 7th Street and Highland. Uh, Terry Davidson of Davidson Bohannon Painting owns the building. And on the wall inside the building, there's this old map, you know, a city map of Phoenix. And it shows Chandler as this little dot. So, you know, that's probably in the 1970s. Um, you know, and out Chandler and Apache Junction Way, they you know, in Mesa, they had a lot, still do have a lot of citrus out there. And the takeaway in all this is that, you know, as much as everything has changed, citrus is still a staple of Arizona. And it's something that you can grow in your yard. You don't have to have these big, huge mega orchards. And right. a couple citrus trees uh, correctly planted could give you citrus almost year round. Not Not from one specific tree, but, you know, if you have the right varieties... Exactly. You, you could almost get a full year of citrus from one variety or the other. Yeah, and the hard, actually the hardest part for that is July, August, and September. But and they and we call that successive ripening, so that you plant different citrus so they ripen at different times. And right now here at the urban farm, I get citrus from November to June. And what types of citrus are on the urban farm? Because uh, so a lot I of people always, think orange, but there's hundreds of varieties of citrus. Exactly. And unfortunately, we can only get a couple of dozen of them. But there are many different varieties that do really well here. My favorite is the Caracara navel. That is a pink navel orange. And it does magnificently well here in the low desert. And it makes these amazing... Uh, baseball to softball size navel oranges. And 
they start ripening along with Washington navel oranges. They start ripening at the end of November. So within about 30 days, I am going to be eating my favorite fruit off of the urban farm trees. And uh, I have 14 navel or navel-like oranges here on the property. And I jokingly say, kind of half jokingly say that about four years ago, I finally started getting enough of those harvested every year that I could share some with my mom. Because <laughs> they're that good. You, you eat that, that many. Good. Yeah, during during citrus harvest season, I am eating four to eight a day, and uh, you know, off of fourteen trees, that's uh, that goes a long way. So I I actually harvest, and I said navel or navel like. So the Trevita orange is my second favorite citrus fruit, and it ripens a month and a half after the navel oranges. So I get navel oranges in. Uh, second half of November, December, January, and early February. So the nice thing about citrus is they last on the tree a long time. And then trovitas start ripening about mid-January into February and March. And then after that comes the Arizona sweets, and the Arizona sweets are great for juicing. Uh, if you like orange juice, plant yourself an Arizona sweet. That's an amazing, um, an amazing citrus. And then uh, uh, Eureka, and uh, Lisbon lemons, definitely want to have a few of those. One of the, what I do with those is I harvest them and I juice them. And last year I juiced seven gallons of lemon juice and stuck it in the deep freeze. And I'm still drinking that. And what I do with that is I'll grab one out of the deep freeze and stick it in the refrigerator. And as it thaws, I take two or three ounces of lemon juice, put it in a big cup of water, you know, my big cup that I carry around with me. Uh, add a little bit of stevia and fill it the rest of the way with water and ice, and I have a nice mild lemonade. And so I get that throughout the year. So, and then, and then some of my other favorites are the uh, gold nugget mandarin. That is an amazing, easy peel, low seed tree that uh, is, you know, it's amazing. And then the blood orange and pomelos. There's a couple of uh, grapefruit or grapefruit-like. The pomelo uh, is a grapefruit-like citrus that can get as big, are you ready for this, as a bowling ball. Yes, they get huge and the, the skin can be an inch thick. And they're a little bit tart, but mostly sweet and are amazing. They ripen in February, March timeframe. So, and what's that, Bree? Brand breed name? It's called a pomelo. Uh, the The main one that we have available to us here is the Chandler pomelo, and it's it, you know it's a delight. It's I not think my, one of those oranges that you can hand squeeze, though. You know, with uh, right? Hand yeah, yeah, you wouldn't want to hand squeeze that one. <laughs> wow. That would be hard, unless you have basketball hands, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite things about citrus is that they last on the tree for so long, and for the most part the birds leave them alone. So you can, you know, you can grow a standard size citrus in your yard, which can easily get 20 feet tall. That'll make hundreds of pounds of citrus. And you can pick them with a citrus picker and eat them for months. And like you said, just pick them as you need them off the tree, because that is one of the miracles of citrus is how long the fruit stays ripe on the tree and how long 
your harvest season is. And then yeah. if you do what Farmer Greg's talking about here, where you're planting different varieties that ripen at different times, you know, you're, you're at a seven, eight, nine, ten month season of, of constant citrus. So yeah. we're talking with Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm. We'll be back here right after this. And during the break, Farmer Greg has confirmed the top four citrus producing states in order, California, Florida, Texas, and Arizona. And in this segment on our talking points, we're going to talk about what's your favorite things to grow and, and size management, which is key because, you know, when we think trees, everyone automatically thinks big, but that's not always what you want in your citrus. Or really or any of your other fruit trees. Really encourage people to do is to keep trees a manageable size for themselves. Now, the nice thing, as I mentioned in the last segment, is the citrus can get bigger and we can pick them with a citrus picker. But if you have a, say, a peach tree that's 25 feet tall, that peach at the top of the peach tree is bird food. <laughs> so so we've, uh, uh, we've uh, taken a lot of information from Dave Wilson Nursery out of Northern California. They do deciduous trees and they do a lot of work around backyard orchard culture or keep basically keeping your trees small to do that it's a function of pruning them so there's two big reasons actually why we want to keep our trees small first of all they're easy to manage if you want to net your tree if you have an eight foot tall tree it's easy to throw tool over it t-u-l-l-e never use bird netting bird netting does two things really well it tangles with the tree and it kills birds so if you're going to net a tree, you want to use something called tulle, T-U-L-L-E. It's what they sell in fabric stores for bridal veils and tutus. Uh, so management, tree management uh, to, is better if you keep the tree small. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the successive ripening. A standard size fruit tree could easily be, of, of all the ones that we've talked about today, could easily be 30 foot wide and 20 to 30 feet tall for citrus and deciduous and apples and pears and all of, you know, all of those. And that footprint is a huge footprint. And if you have a peach tree in your yard, that's 20 foot diameter and 20 foot tall, you're going to get hundreds of pounds of peaches all at once off of that tree. That's just going to make a mess in your yard. You're not going to be able to harvest them all by keeping them small down to about eight feet in that same space, in that same footprint of a standard size tree, you can put three to six small trees, which ripen at different times and give you a lot of, um, you know, a lot of variety of fruit over the course of months rather than over the course of, uh, you know, a few weeks in the case of peaches, uh, a month or so in the case of apples and well, with, as we've said, with citrus, you know, over months. So, that's the reason really to keep the trees small is for successive ripening and being able to manage them. And <clears throat> kept smaller, does that save me water as well? Mm, probably a little bit. Uh, but if you, you know, if you have six trees in the same footprint as one tree, it's, you know, it's going to use the same amount of water. Sure. That makes sense. And one of the, <clears throat> it's hard to get over mentally, but those trees at eight feet are still going to produce more fruit than you probably can eat. You mm -hmm. would need a, a household of many to, to be able yes. to, to consume it all and not have any left over. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
over the years in my gardening experience, I've, I've discovered something. You know, this notion of lack of not having enough. In my humble opinion, there's only one place on the planet that that notion lives and that's between our ears. Because when I go out to my yard and see the amazing abundance out there, it's, it's mind blowing. You know, hundreds of pounds of apples every year, hundreds of pounds of peaches every year and apricots and citrus and seeds. You know, when carrots go to seeds, one carrot seed head can have a thousand seeds on it. So there's this amazing amount of abundance that lives in our garden that feeds us, literally feeds us. And that's what we're here to do. <clears throat> what Farmer Greg is help uh, take advantage of that abundance and turn it into our own food supply and our own little urban farm. And you don't need a lot of land uh, or Farmer Greg's on a third of an acre, if I remember correctly. Yep. And what are those dimensions? You, you always seem to have them right off the top of your head. There you go. 80 by 160 is my lot. And it is flood irrigated. And if you don't have that much, uh, a, a friend of mine on her back patio is, has a 200 square foot back patio, has a nice Trevita orange on it that makes her an abundance of, of Trevita oranges every year. Remember, I said 200 square feet. So she has a standard size Trevita on her backyard, in her backyard and gardens in 200 square feet. So she is, you know, she's raising a lot of food in that space. And there really is no limitation. Even uh, a lot of these new apartment condominiums of duplexes, whatever you want to call them that are going mm -hmm. up, uh, have patio gardens and not all of them are edibles. A lot of them you see, they're like succulents and desert Southwest type plants, but there's, you, you could have a uh, third story of patio apartment and still have you know, uh, an herb garden out there. Absolutely. And here's a hint for anybody. If, if you're out looking for a place and you, it's a condo or like that, and you want to have a garden, make sure that your patio that you want to grow on faces east or south. If it faces west, it's going to be way too hot and it's going to cook. And if it faces north, you're not going to get enough sunlight. So if you're specifically interested in gardening and are looking at a condo or an apartment or townhome, you want a eastern facing so it gets sun in the morning or a southern facing uh, back patio. And that's, you know, that, 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 there's your bonus round. We'll come back and talk about planting success with citrus with Farmer Greg right after this. Thank you for spending your Saturday morning with us. We are continuing our conversation with Farmer Greg on citrus from the urban farm. And, you know, Greg, you had quoted that book about a, a citrus tree that lived over 400 years. Mm -hmm. And Slynn Justice of the Justice Brothers, who runs the the old extension office orchard yep. uh, out on the west side, the 75 acres that uh, they were able to acquire from University of Arizona when they no longer needed that that for research he went to uh, UC Davis and says that the oldest living citrus tree is there on campus still back to the 1800s so wow. we've still got citrus today you'd mentioned you've got some that are 100 years old I think mm -hmm. it was 164 years if I remember correctly but I'll have wow. to dig into the archives and and fact check that so we've got nice. <clears throat> we've got a, a, a tree that produces an abundant amount of edible fruit for us but 
we're not just limited to our typical orange, grapefruit, and lemon. There are so many different varieties that we can take advantage of. And you mentioned a, a few of them earlier and talked about successive ripening. But what other some of the other uh, unknown ones that might do well here? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, there's tango mandarins. Uh, I guess um, your limes, Mexican thornless lime, isn't so unknown, but it does really well here. There is also an interesting uh, set of trees that are people think are citrus, but they're not. They're citrus-like, and that's the kumquats. There's multiple, that's the one where you eat the skin and the inside, and the inside is usually tart and the skin is sweet. So we got lime quats and mandarin quats and uh, kumquats, and they're generally smaller. Uh, so uh, they're great to julienne to put in salads and that kind of stuff. So it's just, we have to get outside of the thinking that just because when I was a kid, I had an Arizona sweet and a yellow grapefruit that those are the only kind of citrus that can grow here there are many 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 more different kinds but the one thing they all have in common is they need healthy soil to grow and produce and you've got uh, your very well thought out and time tested system here of, of creating that healthy soil so that we do have a successful harvest yeah and you know that's the biggest thing no matter what you're growing whether you're growing food or not our desert dirt, let's just call it desert dirt, has less than 1% organic matter. And if you've listened to us on the show today, you know I preach about this relentlessly. It is your job to make sure that you're growing healthy soil because if you grow healthy soil underneath your tree, you're going to have amazing fruit coming off of it. And it starts when you plant your tree. When you plant your tree, what we suggest is that you dig a whole at least two foot by two foot and a foot deep. You take 40% of the dirt that's in the hole and you add planting mix into the wheelbarrow. So you take 40% native soil, 60% planting mix, and we have the Farmer Greg's planting mix at the lot. And you mix that up in the wheelbarrow and you add azomite. Azomite is a micronutrient that, that uh, it's like a vitamin pill for your tree. You add azomite, mycorrhiza, and mycorrhiza is life. It's microbial life and worm castings, gardener's gold in the wheelbarrow. And you mix all of that up. So what we're doing is in that two foot by two foot hole, you're adding all that life and all that organic matter. You're planting your tree on a mound in the middle of your hole, and then you put a six foot diameter basin around the hole. This basin is like a moat around the tree that you put woody mulch in. And that woody mulch does multiple things for us. First of all, at the interface between the dirt and the woody mulch, it starts making really healthy soil very quickly that the roots of the tree will absolutely love. It holds on to moisture like a sponge. So, and when I say six inches, I truly mean at least six inches, eight or 10 inches is better because what we're doing with that woody mulch around the base of the tree is we're building soil like happens in a forest. So that woody mulch holds onto the uh, water and it cools the space a little bit in the summer and it keeps it warmer in the winter a little bit. So that woody mulch is doing a lot. And that is 
the single most important thing you can do is build healthy soil and adding the 60-40 mix, adding the mycorrhiza, the azomite, the worm castings in the wheelbarrow, that all of that is building healthy soil. There are five components of healthy soil. Here I am preaching again, right, Romy? <laughs> Preach on, <laughs> there, brother. <laughs> there are five components of healthy soil. And if you've listened to the show before, you've heard me say this because this is the single most important thing that you need to be doing. And that is um, dirt, which we have plenty of, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. And the good news is, is that the way that you fix desert dirt is you add lots and lots and lots of organic matter because that organic matter brings in the airspace eventually. It brings in the life that's in the soil, the microbes, the micro, you know, the microbial action, and it lets the water be able to percolate in. So there you have it. And back to your woody mulch, that adds a lot of those components into the soil. When we're adding and when we're introducing water to the Arizona desert soil, you know, we've all mm -hmm. seen it where it rains and then a couple weeks later, it's all cracked and dried. Yep. Well, that just makes the clays tougher and tougher and tougher. If we plant our tree, we add water, it dries out, we add water, it dries out, we add water, it dries out. It just makes it harder and more compact and harder for those roots to grow into the soil. That woody mulch added with it, you know, helps when and when it's watered, it in, helps bring in that airspace, loosen it up, and give the roots a place to actually grow. And as we've heard uh, John Eisenhower say, as go the roots, so go the shoots. There you go. Absolutely. And citrus are a little bit funny that, you know, we can plant a peach tree in January and it'll be five times bigger by July. We plant a citrus in January and three years later, it might be twice the size. But what happens interestingly enough with citrus is, is that it, it, it's those roots that are developing underneath for the first couple of years. And then all of a sudden they will explode in year three, four, and five and just, you know, fill up a, fill up a space. So we have to be patient with citrus because they, especially when you're transplanting them, they can go into a little bit of shock and uh, they're, they're a little tender at first, but man, once they get going, look out, you are going to have some amazing growth and amazing fruit. And this goes back to the tree theory that the slower growing the tree, the hardier it is. You know, peaches, you've only really got about a 25, 30 year life on the peach. But a yep. citrus, you've heard us, you know, a couple Hundreds. hundred years. So yeah. those, those, there's something to the slower growing that makes them hardier. Going yeah. back to the hole, I think you've brought this up before. Round or square? Ah, so, yeah, so... You know, I've been planting fruit trees in the desert since 1974. I've been studying, really studying hard and planting them since 1990 or so. And about two years ago, there was a bunch of information that came out about square holes. And when I looked at it, it's like, Greg, where has your brain been? This makes so much sense. <laughs> so here's what can happen especially in the desert, when we're digging a hole, and if you're digging a round hole or even a square hole, if you're using a shovel, the sides of the hole can get glazed. And if the sides of the hole get glazed, that can be an impediment to the roots going in to the side of the hole. So what I've said for years is you take a pick or a shovel and you put divots in the side of the hole so it's not smooth. 
because what can happen in a round hole is that a tree gets planted in a round hole and if, it's, if you've got enough caliche in, in the surrounding area, the roots will go to the edge of the hole and stop. And what the, the research showed on the square hole is that the, the roots don't go, grow around in a circle if it's in a square hole because you have a square hole. So that if the roots start growing and they hit the side and start and then turn and head toward, you know, start try, trying to follow the edge of the hole, once they get to the corner, they're not going to make a 90 degree turn. They're going to keep going. So, you know, that was a head smacker for me a couple of years ago <laughs> when it was like, oh my gosh, Greg, come on, get with it. This is such a better way to do it. And it's always better to plant the tree a little bit higher <clears throat> above the ground. And when yes. we're putting our mulch in, that way the mulch doesn't cover the trunk. Because if the tree is planted flush with the ground and you put in six inches of mulch and that mulch covers the trunk of the tree, I mean, you're, you're just setting that tree up to eventually die. Exactly. And I've seen it happen. I've absolutely seen it happen here, especially in flood, ir flood irrigated properties. Um, so make sure that you put that tree on a mound in the center. That is imperative. And that's not, <clears throat> if you dug too deep, you've really mm -hmm. got to, you can't just put in your mix from your wheelbarrow that you were talking about in your tree on top, because that'll compact and, exactly. and sink really quick. So you've, you've got to come back in with, you know, the, the, the harder native soil, compact it and make sure that that tree is, is not below, in fact, a couple inches above the, the surface level. Yeah, and so there's a caveat here, um, and that is why I tell people only to go 12 inches deep to start with. And the caveat is, is once you have your hole dug, stick a hose in it and fill the hole up and see how long it takes to drain. That we call, we call that a perk test or a percolation test to see how long it takes to drain. If your hole drains with, you know, within two, three, four hours, you're good to go. If you have a swimming pool in your hole 24 hours later, you got to go deeper. You got to break through that caliche layer. And we have all kinds of information on what to do about that at fruittrees.org on our website. If you have caliche problem. You know, that's a great tip because usually uh, if I'm planting, I time it till after a rain or times like this where we've got extended periods where there's no rain. I'll just go put a hose on a slow trickle where I want to dig, mm -hmm. you know, the day before and then come back the next day and, you know, save, save my picks, save your back, <laughs> my back. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned rain. What rain? We haven't had measurable rain here at the urban farm, uh, which is near 16th street in Bethany home. We haven't had measurable rain here since uh, March and here it is almost November. So, and, and the Gary and I were talking before we started, it looks like maybe Monday we're going to get rain. Fall's going to come in like a hammer. I mean, nice. you know, the hot weather's just going to disappear. I mean, the, so, and it'll help the fall colors too as well. Yeah, we'll take it. We will take it. Wrapping up our final segment with farmer Greg of the Urban Farm. We've been talking citrus today and, we were talking about how hardy they were, but, you know, we do have to highlight a new potential threat that's made its way into the Southwest. Um, this, this facility, uh, <laughs> the Asian the Greek citrus psyllid, yes. As of 
most recent news, we haven't actually had the citrus greening disease here. It is a bug that shows up and carries a, uh, a greening disease that has the citrus not ripen. The USDA has done, and uh, Arizona Department of Ag has done a really good job of making sure that it ha doesn't come into the state, which thank God for that. However, what it's done is, is it's created a, a massive shortage of citrus here. We had a couple of gr citrus growers in the state and it got whittled down to one and uh, Sunset Citrus Nursery is down in Yuma. They're amazing growers down there, but they're the only grower in the state. So that I have been able to find, I've been looking for the past year, there are no citrus growers in California that will ship to Arizona. They can bring citrus in the state, but there's all kinds of guidelines and that kind of stuff. So they just don't, like I said, it's whittled down to one grower in the state. And it's just, uh, it makes it challenging to get citrus. And that's why I remember you said there, there are hundreds of citrus varieties that we could grow but there's only about 20 or 30 different varieties that we can actually get because the, the, they're just not available here. So the nursery, by the way, is open today, 4549 North 7th Street with a few leftover citrus. We're just getting to the end of our citrus uh, program this year. So we do have a bit of that left, um, but it makes it challenging to actually get product so that you can plant them in your yard. So. Once you get a citrus in your yard, if, if it's growing, do everything you can to make sure that it's, you know, does really, really well. What if we've already got one properly implanted, dug a hole, stuck it in, maybe a bag of soil from the nursery that they sold them? What, what can they do to add to the success of, of, of that tree's longevity? Big thing you do is put your basin in. A minimum, I call it my 6-6 six, six rule, minimum six foot diameter basin, minimum six inches of woody mulch. If you have a bigger tree than a six foot diameter tree, you wanna to go to the drip line or all the way to the edge of the leaves. So put your basin in and then put your planting kit in the basin. And the planting kit, I mentioned it earlier, is uh, azomite, mycorrhiza, and worm castings. And you spread that evenly in the basin underneath the tree and water it in. At that point, I'd also put your fertilizer in. We sell an organic, only organic fertilizer. You put water that in and then you put your six inches of mulch on top. And I have seen people do this with struggling citrus trees here in the Southwest. And once you do that, the trees absolutely take off. And there is a silver bullet that we have found for growing fruit trees here in the desert, especially with the extreme heat that we've had. And that is foliar feeding, where you actually apply a, a spray of fish and kelp emulsion on the leaves of the tree. And we are finding that that makes all the difference in the world, whether your tree is gonna survive or not. I've been- So tell me about this fish emulsion life. spray. I hadn't heard this before. Um, we need to do a whole segment on foliar feeding, one of these fifths uh, Saturdays that you guys got going on. Uh, basically, you know, those pump up sprayers that you mm -hmm. can get at the, the, you know, at the store, um, you put a gallon or two gallons of water in there and the foliar feed is usually in the form of uh, humic acid, kelp emulsion or fish emulsion. And you put an ounce per gallon of either any of those in the water. So it's really light and you just pump this thing up and you uh, spray it on the trees and it makes all the difference in the world. This will be the difference between your trees making it through the heat 
and them not making through it through the heat. And I'm not just talking fruit trees here. You can do this on all your trees and plants. Interesting. I've and <clears throat> if I'm going shopping at the nursery, I, I don't ever recall even seeing a, a foliar leaf spray. Where 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 do I go look for this? Um, well, we have it at um, fruittrees.org, so you can get it from us. You can we can mail it to you, or you can. Um, pick it up on my doorstep or at the nursery, uh, but you're looking for, so the fish emulsion smells fishy. <laughs> so you never want to use that inside. Uh, and outside, you know, you have to temper that with your what your neighbors might think. But the kelp emulsion and the humic acids aren't smelly like that. So, um, you know, you're just looking for fish or kelp emulsion and they usually sell it in quarts or gallons. And could I combine the two? What's the difference between a kelp and a fish emulsion? Um, they bring in different pieces. In our foliar feeding schedule, we have a month-by-month -month foliar feeding schedule, and we actually have four different uh, four different supplements that we use, depending on which month it is. Uh, some of them help build roots. Some of them help build uh, the uh, leaves and branches, some of them help make fruit. So um, we actually sell them by the quart. And if you buy three of them, we give you the fourth one for free. And uh, and it comes with instructions and uh, a video on how to do it and like that. So, Well, thank you, Farmer Greg. And if anybody's interested or motivated to get started, uh, the nursery is open today. Again, that address? 4549 north 7th street that's just south of camelback on 7th street and if you go to fruittrees.org there's uh, information on where our nursery's at as well and we're this season so this fall we're only open until uh, the end of the day today because uh, uh, and then we'll be open back in january for the deciduous trees that's farmer greg you can find them also at urbanfarm.org thanks <laughs>